Today's podcast episode is brought to you by RxBar. Visit rxbar.com forward slash elevator for 25% off your first order. Recovery Elevator episode 155. So that was the, uh, the moment where I put down the shovel, stopped digging my hole any deeper, and just prayed to God, help me get sober. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for 1,237 days. On today's podcast, we've got Chrissy. She's 48 years old. She's from Mill Valley, California. She's a mother of two, and she's been sober for over two and a half years. One thing in specific we talk about in her interview is she talks about how she married her drinking buddy. As I mentioned, this episode is brought to you by RX Bar. RX Bar is a whole food protein bar. What does that mean? Well, their bars are made with 100% whole ingredients. They label the core ingredients. This would be egg whites, dates, and nuts on the front of the package and the ingredients that make up the texture and taste on the back of the package. And that would be 100% real cacao, coconut, etc. Beyond being a go-to snack that checks off a number of nutritional boxes, RX Bars actually taste delicious. Now I can confirm this personally. My favorite bar is chocolate sea salt. In fact, a couple days a week, all I have for breakfast is an RX bar. They are delicious. RX bar's core ingredients do all the talking. It's simply like eating three egg whites, two dates, and six almonds, but without the BS. It turns out real food ingredients actually taste really good. You can actually taste the cacao, the real fruit, the spices like sea salt. Whether you like sweet or savory, chocolate or fruit flavors, there is an RX bar for you. So visit rxbar.com forward slash elevator for 25% off your first order. Okay, let's get started. In Russell Brand's book titled Recovery, he says, For us to be successful in sobriety, we must fill the void left by alcohol. In fact, sobriety is much more than subtraction. In fact, it's about addition, adding things to our lives. Now, I've been sober for a little bit of time. I've been going on this journey for more than a little bit of time, but this is a relatively new concept. But looking back, when I first got sober on January 1st, 2010, whether I knew it or not, I was either filling the void or I wasn't filling the void. When we quit drinking, there's a void in our lives. This void disseminates across many areas of our lives. So what happens when we don't fill this void? Well, number one, we're relying on willpower to stay sober. Willpower is a finite muscle. Eventually, it will be fatigued and it will run out. Studies show the unconscious mind responds a third of a second faster than the conscious mind. That would be when the willpower muscle says, oh, I'm done. I'm taking a break. Want to drink, Paul? Yes. Oh, crap. What did I just say? The unconscious mind just answered for me. The second thing that happens when we don't fill this void left by alcohol is we are a dry drunk. What's a dry drunk? Well, the book term of this would be somebody that's not working an air quotes program. And I use the word program loosely. I'm not referring to a 12-step program. I'm not referring to a program that involves you meeting with a person at a coffee shop, writing things down, your imperfections in a notebook, aka the fourth step. In fact, listening to this podcast right now is something that a dry drunk wouldn't do. And the third thing that happens when we don't fill this void left by alcohol is the mindset. We don't look at sobriety as an opportunity. We view it as a sacrifice. 
So what voids do we need to address in our lives? What voids are left when we quit drinking alcohol? Like I mentioned, this disseminates into many parts of our lives. There will be a void with our socialization. And that would be socializing with others at happy hour, at a party, at a wedding, drinking with others at social events. But I don't know about you guys, but at the tail end of my drinking, I did a lot of drinking alone. It was me, Paul Churchill, and a bottle. There was a lot of socialization that happened with myself. Another void that we need to fill is the way we interact in our relationships, the way we sleep, the way we relax, the way we deal with stressful situations, the way we go about our daily routine. For example, for the past 12 years, after work at 5.15, we get home and we open up a cold one. If we don't fill that void, find a way to fill that routine with a healthier option, getting sober and staying sober is difficult. Looking back on my sobriety, it was clear there were times where I was not addressing this void. From 2010 to 2012 and a half, I wasn't filling this void. I didn't even know there was a void that needed to be filled. I was viewing sobriety as subtraction, as a sacrifice and not an opportunity. So after the pink cloud vanished, about a year into sobriety, right around 2011, things got painful. It was painful moving forward without a drink because it was a huge sacrifice. Each day I was moving forward using willpower to decline a drink. Every time I was offered a drink, I declined on willpower and willpower alone. I was a dry drunk. If you would ask me, hey Paul, um, are you an alcoholic or, or why are you not drinking? I would have said, whoa there Roger, pump the brakes, I don't drink. Want to talk about it? Great, I don't. I don't drink, that's it. I had no other relationships with other like-minded individuals. So in August of 2012, I was at a bar, I got offered a drink and I said yes. Like I mentioned, the unconscious mind responds a third of a second faster. At that moment in my sobriety, my willpower muscle was completely fatigued and I said yes. I took the shot, I had two more. I knew at that moment if I stayed at the bar, I would be driving home extremely intoxicated so I left at that very moment. I got home, I continued to drink all the booze in the house. At around 2.30 in the morning, when all the gas stations were closed, there was no possibility of me purchasing more alcohol, I found myself at my computer with hydrogen peroxide to my left, rubbing alcohol on the right, and I was Googling which one I could drink, maybe which one of the two contained alcohol, whatever I could drink to keep the party with myself going. Holy shit, eye-opener, sobriety was the right decision for me. Unfortunately, I went on for the next two years with a painful sick and tired of being sick and tired, failed suicide attempt, DUI, etc., etc. We've heard that story of the previous 153 podcast episodes. But on September 7th, 2014, when I got sober, I didn't know it, but I started to fill the void. And looking back, that's what I've been doing since then. Getting sober and staying sober for myself was probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my entire life. Much harder than learning to ride a two-wheel bicycle when I was five years old, and harder than learning the guitar solo in the Third Eye Blind song, Semi-Charmed Kind of Life. Much harder. But here's the good news. Filling these voids, it doesn't have to suck. In fact, it can be a lot of fun. In sobriety, we find ourselves with more time. Sure, the time that we're not drinking, but also the lost productivity hours when we're hungover. It's important we find healthy ways to fill this time. 
These are activities that release dopamine in the brain that get the neurotransmitters going. If you want to dabble with professional bass fishing, then go for it. Here's some ideas of some new hobbies that you could incorporate into your life. We've got aircraft spotting, canoeing, fishing, airbrushing, cartooning, floorball, airsofting, car racing, making floral arrangements, acting, fly tying, arrow modeling, cave diving, football, amateur astronomy, ceramics, floor wheeling, amateur radio, aka podcasting. We've got cheerleading. You can do freshwater aquariums. You can get in the whole animal thing. You can get a pet. You can get a dog. If you like chess, do it more. How about frisbee golf? How about froth? How about archery? How about church? How about games? How about arts? How about cigar smoking? Nah, let's not do cigar smoking, but maybe gardening. What about more aquarium actions? Let's do salt water this time. What about cloud watching? They're so cool. There's so many different types of clouds. What about garage sailing? Have your own garage sale or go to the garage sale. You could do astrology. You could do amateurist astrology and eventually you could become a professional astrologist. And then how about collecting? You could collect antiques, artwork, hats, music albums, RPM records, REM records, sports cards, and much more. You could do geocaching, ghost hunting, glow sticking, gnoming, going to the movies, golf, go kart racing. You could work on your grip strength. You could do guitar. You could do bead work. You could do beatboxing. You could become a child advocate. You can do bell ringing, belly dancing, bicycling, cooking, cross play. Don't know what cross play is. You can do crafts. You can do crochet. You can do cross stitch. You can do hunting, ice skating, illusions, Michael, impersonations, internet inventing, work on that jet engine finally, and hey, juggling with two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, or eleven balls. Oh yeah, don't forget kayaking. And that's about it. No, wait, we've got dominoes, electronics, embroidery, entertaining falconry, fast cars, felting, fencing, and making fire pits. Good God, there's about 19 things that I read that I want to hit the stop recording button right now and go dabble. Like I mentioned, it's important that we fill our time with fun hobbies, things we like to do, things that get those enhanced dopamine receptors going. In sobriety, I got a keyboard, and then I got a broken kneeboard. I'm just kidding. The broken kneeboard, that's a line from a Macklemore song. I did get a keyboard, and I'm okay. I can play a couple Coldplay songs, Joy to the World, and that's about it. But I enjoy going up there and just playing on my keyboard. It's meditative. So we can explore to fill this void in many other ways of our lives. We can work on our routine. At the retreat in Bozeman, we did a workshop on the 5 a.m. Miracle Morning. It's where you wake up at 5 a.m. and for 10 minutes for the first hour of your day, you fill it with journaling, exercise, stretching, reading a professional book. Um, another thing I can't remember off the top of my head, but you get the point. There's a whole lot of routines that we can experiment with. Relaxation. We need to fill that void because we used to drink to relax. Ironic thing is, the drinking doesn't actually help us relax. It just slows down our faculties. But try meditation. Try yoga. Take a bubble bath. Start a chamomile tea club. Go out and download all the music ever written by Yanni and Kenny G. But the most important void that we need to fill in sobriety is the one of community. Like I mentioned before, when I was drinking alone, it was Paul, Churchill, the bottle, and myself, a community of three. But in recovery and sobriety, we must find a way to fill this void with a new community. And if we focus on the similarities and not the differences, we've got something huge in common, which would be alcohol. It's pretty easy to instantly create a bond with other like-minded individuals. Okay, enough out of me. Let's hear from our interviewee, Chrissy. But before, let's hear from Cafe RE. 
The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me, I tried for over two years and it was painful. So here's the good news. With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group 24 hours a day. There, you can get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. For $14 a month, you can join the conversation, be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, attend online meetups, attend in-person Cafe R meetups, and participate in book club. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Chrissy, how are you? Good morning, Paul. I'm great. How are you this morning? I'm great. Thanks for joining us. And Chrissy, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? I've been sober since March 21st of 2015. So on your cool tracker, it's about 1,034 days. I must mention that. And I got sober in Mill Valley, California, which is where I live right now. It's about seven miles north of the Golden Gate Bridge. Nice. Congratulations on that. Sounds like you're coming up on three years this March. That is fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. And before we get any further, give listeners a little background about yourself, Chrissy, maybe where you're from. You just said Mill Valley, California, but what you do for a living, how old are you, are you married, and what do you like to do for fun? I am 48 years old, and I am a pharmaceutical district sales manager. I've been doing that for a long time, both sober and uh, drunk. It's easier doing it sober. I have two kids, two boys, 13 and 11, and I pretty much things revolve around either work or my kids right now. That's the point I'm in my life and lucky enough to do that, being sober. Right now, it's January, so we're kind of in the football's over. They love football. They play tackle football, which is kind of, you know, it's a little controversial too, but uh, Mm -hmm. they love it, and uh, now we're in season though so we're doing a lot of skiing up at squat which is in lake tahoe a few hours from our house i think we got some baseball tryouts this morning so lots of sports i live in a house with all guys and my one ally is my little doggy angel she's a cavalier king charles and then i have a chihuini named taco so two dogs two boys and a husband is a chihuini a chihuahua i'm gonna go out on a limb here it's a chihuahua and a wiener dog oh my gosh that sounds amazing <laughs> That is fantastic. And Chrissy, let's back it up a little bit. You're 48 years old. You've got over a thousand days sober. When did you first start to realize you had a drinking problem? You know, I was a good uh, textbook case for denial. I surrounded myself with a lot of people that drank. Married my drinking buddy, still married. We're working on that. And, you know, I really realized, you know, I started as many of us do, dabbling with it to get out of our heads. You know, when I was probably in seventh grade, 12 years old, I remember doing that with some of my friends. It didn't really take off in high school and college, but when it really became a problem was when I moved to Northern California. And, you know, like you get a lot of your listeners that say, you know, in my town, everybody drinks. But I could say (laughs) the same thing, you know, being about 40 miles from Napa. That's just part of the culture. So really started drinking then, and my drinking habits were drinking every day, every night drinking wine. You know, I remember moving to San Francisco, my husband and I used to share a bottle of wine, and uh, that was about it. But, you know, it gets progressive, and it gets, you drink more, and that was, you know, 
gosh, about even four years later, you know, I was drinking two bottles by myself. So, and in the end, in 2015, I got sober in March, so about in January, I really started drinking, you know, adding the vodka into it, adding the, you know, nip in the morning, making plans I could be home to start drinking after lunch. And that's when it really took off very, very quickly, I'd say from January of 2015 till March, it just like took off running. So it was over the course of, you know, my lifetime, age 12 to 45 years, but it definitely got worse. I like what you have shared in your podcast when you say, you know, eventually, if you drink enough, you'll get there. And apparently I did drink enough. Um, That was the question that a lot of my friends asked me, you know, how much were you drinking? And, you know, I could share with them, but I would just say, you know, apparently it was enough. My body had enough and Mm -hmm. I ended up being diagnosed with a grade A cirrhosis at 45, being a mom in Mill Valley, having a full-time job. And uh, yeah, that, I did not see that one coming. I assume grade A, is that like a highest degree? It's the lowest degree. Okay. Yeah, it's the lowest degree. God, so, you got to make it confusing um, so it in the was, medical industry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So grade A was the lowest degree of, of cirrhosis. Gotcha. And your email so you sent I, to me, you you said you didn't think you drank enough, but apparently you did drink enough. Yeah. What was that like when you found out you had grade A liver cirrhosis? Well, you, you know, I um, I knew something was wrong because I had lost a lot of weight. And the comments that I was getting from people that didn't know me that well were, wow, you look good. You're skinny. You know, what are you doing to lose <laughs> this weight? Yeah. My answer was, that, yeah, only drinking and not eating anything. <laughs> That's the ticket right not there. Not too healthy. <laughs> exactly. That's it. All my calories come from booze. So it was pretty disgusting because I got to a point where I was doing a yoga class and the yoga instructor's like, you can't do a headstand because you're pregnant. And I'm like, Ooh. well, I better not be pregnant because I'm 45 and that's ascites in my stomach. My liver was actually backed up and not processing what it needed to. And I started to get like a bulge in my stomach. Mm-hmm. And that happened very quickly within a few weeks. And I was kind of ignoring it, ignoring it. I was working in San Francisco and one of my social workers that I was calling on at a hospital, she looked me in the eye and she goes, your eyes are yellow. Ooh. And I was like, you know, in my head, okay, you know, game's over. Yeah, the writing's <laughs> on the better. wall all over the place. Yeah, your eyes are yellow. And no one had, I hadn't looked in the mirror because I didn't like looking in the mirror. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that I was so sick. So that was a hospital that was more like, treating people that um, had cancer and burn victims. So I went right over to the other hospital that did GI stuff and I knew something was wrong in my stomach. So they did an ultrasound and I asked the gal, you know, what do you see? She's like, I can't tell you what I see. Only the doctor can. I'm like, come on, just tell me what you see. So she said, I see that your blood is not flowing the right way inside your stomach. It's Mm. going up into your lungs and your liver is not processing. It just, what she was seeing was like slow motion on the ultrasound. So the doctor that came into the emergency department where I was in uh, one of the rooms, he didn't even, he didn't ask me how much I drank. He, I mean, he don't even think he asked me my name. He just walked <laughs> right in and he goes, you're an alcoholic. <laughs> oh, wow. What was that like to hear? And I was like, okay. And my girlfriend had come to the hospital because I had called her. She came to sit with me and her first out of her mouth was like, no, she's not. Oh, <laughs> I'm like, wow. And he's a doctor. <laughs> like, yeah. And so then he said, I'm going to, um, 
I'm going to send you up to the sixth floor. And I knew because I was in the profession that the sixth floor was transplant. So, I mean, the whole thing just scared the bejeebas out of me. <laughs> is, the, is there a and, bar on the sixth floor? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's where we all go. If you drink enough, you will end up on the sixth floor. Jesus. And right. So that was the, um, the moment where I put down the shovel, stopped digging my hole any deeper and just prayed to God, help me get sober. That was it. And I, they, you know, for anyone who's at that point where they just didn't even know how to stop, I say, go try to go to the, go to the emergency room, go see a doctor, ask for some help. They will, they'll put you away for a few hours to keep you away from alcohol. If it's that serious, there's resources available. Wow. Um, I, I like how the doctor didn't even BS and just walked in and said, yeah, you need to quit drinking. And you're like, Hey, can we start over? I'm Chrissy. How are you? Yeah. <laughs> That's quite a shock <laughs> to the system in all regards. Um, and so I'm sure there were some acute pain points and, 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 you know, maybe there was times where you questioned your drinking, but there's a question that I ask a lot of people, you know, describe your drinking habits and how much you drink. And do you ever attempt to moderate control your drinking? I don't know if this question is applicable and tell me if it is. But it sounds like you walked in, you're like, hey, am I, I, someone called me pregnant during the yoga class. What the hell is going on? Did you go through that phase, which is absolutely exhausting, where you have the cognitive dissonance, where you're like, oh, I want to quit drinking, you know, the failed attempts and things like that? Or was it just like, hey, you got grade A liver disease and you're one and done? You know, what I was going through, I, I really started drinking more heavily after my kids were born. And so my son is 11, so he was about um, eight or I think it was just turned nine when I got sober. But what I was trying to do is I was always trying to manage it. So I always wanted to get like relaxed and loaded, but not enough where I wouldn't remember things or I would, you know, leave the party and go put myself to bed. So I switched around drinks a lot, you know, eat before, don't eat before. Drink wine, put spritzer in it. Drink vodka instead. I was always trying to manage it. Mm -hmm. I don't, I have heard that commonly with alcoholics. We're trying to manage things, but I never wanted to stop. I mean, heck no. Why would I stop? Right. That was the, my gotcha. favorite thing to do. So the concept of abstinence of stopping altogether was really quite foreign to you until the doctor said, look, you need to stop. Is, is that what I'm hearing? Exactly. Wow. I mean, I guess there's a silver lining in there because with a lot of people, including myself, as soon as you start toiling with the idea that, okay, I do need to stop. It's not like an instant stop. It's like years, months, just of this painful cognitive dissonance. That's kind of, you're the sick and tired of being sick and tired. But, uh, yeah. So I guess if there's a silver lining there, like you, like you said, you put the shovel down and, uh, you went at it quick. And so what was it like when you first got sober? How you, when did the how was the pregnancy, shall we say? Like, how long did it take for the the stomach to go back to normal? Well, that's, I mean, it was pretty disgusting. In fact, I took pictures of it so I would remember. Like, I have pictures of that, right? I can look at that and go, that's gross. And then I can also look at my discharge papers from the hospital that say alcoholic cirrhosis. So if I'm ever like, wow. well, I can drink normally. It's like, I have those filed away. I can pull them out and I've looked at them. Alcoholic cirrhosis. That took me a while to like digest, even believe. But what my stomach, you know, they could stick a needle and suck the, um, the liquid out, but that is an increased risk of infection. So they just gave me a lot of diuretics, a lot of vitamin K. I mean, you know, doctors have told me the only people that really benefit from taking vitamins are alcoholics because we're the only ones that really absorb the nutrients. Hmm. So 
They gave me a ton of vitamins in the hospital. They then my fluid with uh, diuretics stopped, uh, you know, you know, began to to go away. And it just took a few weeks. You know, it's a miracle how quickly your body starts repairing itself when you take away the poison of alcohol. It's crazy how fast you start to get better. So I do have that reminder of every six months I have an ultrasound every year now we're down to I see my hepatologist. She's awesome. If anyone needs a hepatologist, love her. She wants to help people get sober. So many of her patients don't get sober. And she does a lot of transplants. I don't need a transplant um, because I stopped. And But if I start drinking, you know, it could happen again. And she, she even says that, you know, even if you're an alcoholic and you get a new liver, she said, some people, it's just their body. They get it again. Doesn't matter if it's someone else's liver. Their body, um, they have a higher increase of, of having a you know, repeat bad liver, even if they get a new one, if they don't stop drinking. So yeah, that keeps I've, me sober. Yeah. I mean, that is some killer sobriety fuel right there. Alcoholic cirrhosis of the liver. I mean, that, there's no gray area there. There's no way to read that diagnosis. And, and uh, yeah, be like, well, you know, let me, let me call the doctor and just get a, get, a, get a synapsis of what, no, that's like pretty clear. But I got to give you props. Not everybody, and you just mentioned this a couple of minutes ago or seconds ago, is not everybody quits drinking, even though they have fear of life scared into them. Because if you continue drinking, the options were probably just death, you know, probably pretty, pretty bleak. But I got to give you props. Not everybody quits drinking because fear can get people sober, but it doesn't necessarily keep people sober. And, you know, what, what's a takeaway? What did you learn about yourself during this process? In the beginning, you know, when I got out of the fog, that was my brain, which took about a year, but initially it only took a few weeks. I really was trying to think about why did I drink? Why did I drink? Why did I drink? But in the beginning, it doesn't freaking matter why you drink. Like, just don't drink anymore and get through that, right? So Mm -hmm. I beat myself up a little bit about that of like, well, how did this happen? But the most important thing was stop it from continuing. And then as I got sober, you know, Year one, it was all about how do I do this? You know, how do I surround myself with a with a environment that I'm going to succeed? And then year two was how do I don't how do I not kill my husband because he still drinks and get mad at everybody? You know, so then mm-hmm. year two I was kind of trying to be in gratitude, but a little bit like poor me. But you know, as they say, poor me. Next is poor me a drink. Yeah. So I had to get out of that. But mm-hmm. I had to work through that, right? That was year two, and now um, the third year, I just kind of feel like I'm finally like exhaling, and you know, I feel good. Yeah, no, there's there's a process that I want to chat with you about that everybody goes through, but yours was expedited, and that's almost like the Dear John letter, the goodbye letter to alcohol, where a lot of people have time to digest this and and be a 100% certain that okay, alcohol and me were no longer best friends for me. I had I had years, four, five, six, seven years, where I was like, okay, you were my best friend alcohol, but you're not anymore. What was that process like for you? And I'm sure that happened right around the time when the doctor came in and said, hey, Chrissy, actually, you didn't even say your name. You're an alcoholic. Go to the sixth yeah. floor where there <laughs> is no bar. I'm, I'm sure it, we, all of us alcoholics, we have the obsession to return to a normal drinker. For you, you pretty much were told that information. You had a choice, either accept it or not accept it. So what was that? And it sounds like you accepted it. So what was that process of saying goodbye to alcohol like for you that you had to do it so quickly? Oh, you know, I did. I did feel like I was like kicking my best friend to the curb because although it took me, you know, to almost, you know, death, 
it brought me a lot of good times. So it was, um, it was emotional. The first thing I did was, you know, I told my husband, I'm like, take all the alcohol and put it where I won't run into it. You know, a lot of people said, get it out of the house. But I just said, get it out of the fridge. Because I used to just open the fridge and there was a bottle right there. And I mean, forget the glass, just go with the bottle, right? That's going to be more effective, quicker, and, you know, less dishes. You know, he was pouring it down your throat. So I said, get it out of the, where I would grab it, right? In the fridge right there and put it where I won't see it. I was kind of first, you know, like walking in my house. It was like a feeling. I know, Paul, you, you haven't had like, kids before but it's kind of like when you bring home a baby i got a and poodle like my life okay you so when you brought home ben right <laughs> you walk in your house and you're like it's the exact same thing <laughs> i'm kidding are not the same anymore right yeah. things are totally different so that um initially when i first came home from the hospital and walked in the house i'm like whoa my life has changed I mean, all of it it was just surreal like this is <laughs> Um, you ask your husband, did, did is- you rearrange the furniture? Because something is definitely wrong. <laughs> I have not, right? So, um, I don't know. I mean, looking back on it, I just had uh, made such a decision that I was done. That um, in, initially, I'm sure I was white knuckling it, you know? I was totally white knuckling it, just trying so hard not to drink. And I was really sad. I was disappointed in myself that I had gotten to this point. I was sad that my life was going to have to change. But, you know, I say this now to people. I'm like, my kids are great. My husband's great. But the best thing I ever did was putting down the booze. That was the best thing. The one thing, one thing that I could change in my life, just not drinking, has a ripple effect on every single thing I do and every person I come in contact with. It's like crazy Tony Robbins shit, you know, like one thing. And it changes everything. Can you say that one more time? And I'm asking you to say that one more time because I know someone is on the freeway. They got distracted. They saw a seagull flying in front of them. Say it one more time what you just said. So putting down the booze was the one thing I did that changed every single thing in my life. My relationships, my at work, my relationships at home, my relationships with my neighbors, the way the colors that I see outside now it changed every single thing in my life. So we have a tremendous opportunity. Is, you know, if you're questioning your drinking, where you're at in this journey, is we have an opportunity to completely, lack of a better term, un-F ourselves, where the general population, normal drinkers, they can wake up and be like, oh my God, what's wrong with my life? And they gotta dig a little deeper. But when we're ready to quit drinking, and we quit drinking, and we do it for a prolonged period of time, like you just said twice, Chrissy, our lives improve dramatically, and it's a tremendous opportunity. It's not a sacrifice, and you know, with with three years, almost three years of sobriety, Chrissy, um, I, I you know mentioned twelve step programs has been vital to recovery. Let's talk about willpower and a program. Is is you know it's it's hard to make it as far as you have without working a program, and you can't make it as far in willpower, um, especially as fear is a motivator that just doesn't work. So how did how have you done it? How have you stayed sober this long? What does a day in recovery look like for you? So when I got out of the hospital on a Thursday and Friday, I went to my next door neighbor, and I'm like, Hey Jim, I need to go to a meeting. And he knew exactly what I was talking about because I knew he had been sober for a long time. And, you know, I just knew we lived close together and he used to let me share his recycle bin. He knew I was, you know, a lot of booze going on in our house. So he took me to a meeting, a 12-step meeting. 
And I'm very, very blessed where I live because um, between San Francisco and Marin County, I mean, there's like hundreds of meetings to go to. So I went to a meeting. It was at noon. There was a, it was a mixed meeting. I raised my hand as a new plumber. Definitely suggest that because you can't get help unless you say, hey, I'm new at this. Mm-hmm. Found my sponsor that I just knew as another mom in recovery in school. I didn't know she was in recovery and she works in, um, she's a doctor at a rehab. I mean, that's a God oh, shot, wow. right? I get a doctor for a sponsor and yeah. I'm sick, like crazy, <laughs> crazy stuff. So, um, so she's been my sponsor, um, for the last, you know, hundred thousand days. And we meet a couple times a month. We're both real busy, but before we say goodbye, we always get something else on the book. And so, she helped me through the 12 steps and I didn't even do them. I think, and I mean, it took me a while to do them and now I'm doing them again and now I'm doing them with a sponsee. So working those 12 steps of recovery and going to meeting and listening to your podcast, looking at recovery articles, reading books, all that stuff. I mean, just surrounding myself, you know, we talk about it comes recovery family work. And it's not always like that for me, but if I want to stay sober, it has to be like that more than 50% of the time for myself is the recovery and then family and then work. I'm a morning person, so I, I know that now. Even when I was drinking, I was a good morning person, but I, that's how I start my day. You know, What do I need to do today to stay sober? You mentioned, I wrote this down early in the interview, you married your drinking buddy, and then you mentioned it about five minutes ago where year two to three or year one to two is dealing with your husband who is still drinking. Talk to me more about that. Yeah, that's interesting. I like that in the beginning to blame him a lot for my drinking. Mm. Uh, Worked through that, my issue, not his. I I can't say if anyone's an alcoholic because I don't know what's in people's heads. All I know is I woke up thinking I feel like crap, but that's how I felt every day. So I really didn't think I had a hangover. My plan was go to work, get my stuff done and when am I going to drink you know I don't know what's in his head I don't know how he thinks but in the past three years he definitely drinks less because I'm not there to drink with him and you know I'm not kidding it's been really tough and you know when we use all the resources we have I mean I've gone and done therapy we did therapy together and you know at this point in my life I think that I just need to work on myself because that's the only thing I can control So then I just started working on myself. And I mean, amazingly, things got better when I just cleaned up my own side of the street. So do you think your husband perhaps doesn't drink normally? Do you think he might be an alcoholic as well? You know, at first, of course, I thought everyone was, you know, that was my diagnosis for everyone. But I don't don't want to label him an alcoholic because he didn't drink like me. And where we, you know, people that he hangs around with, I don't think it's a coincidence that you know, he, he's a bunch of around of either relapsed or recovered alcoholics because that's the people that he likes. I mean, I like them too, right? We're mm-hmm. fun people, you know, we're attracted to that. So I'm still working on that one. We're still married. We're still, you know, enjoy doing fun stuff that's not drinking. You know, he mm-hmm. laughs. He's like, you're kind of a cheap date now or, I, you know, but then <laughs> I'll order an appetizer now. So I guess they're not really that cheap. Oh, uh, calamari. <laughs> exactly. Not yeah. that ahi pokey. I'm not drinking. <laughs> so, uh, in how we, I want to cover this a little more because in the private groups and mm-hmm. cafe area, this is a huge topic. I see this posted all the time. Is okay. I quit drinking. My spouse, however, 
is, is still on the same drinking patterns as before and it can kind of drive a wedge in relationships and you know i ask is your husband an alcoholic again that's not a label for us to put on anybody right. that's for them to decide you know and i read an article the other day that nine out of ten heavy drinkers can most likely just stop drinking they're not they're not addicted or dependent on alcohol which was is surprising to me but um yeah comment a little bit more on that what advice do you have to somebody out there who, who is sober, but there is like this wedge, there's just something missing in the relationship. And it sounds like you've gone through it. You've, you've gone with therapy. You're, you're still married, but just touch a little bit more on this subject. And, and maybe with somebody who's like got 30 days, 60 days of sobriety. And this is like a really green, fresh issue. Oh, and I, I can like feel it when you put it in perspective like that. I can remember how I was like, don't you see how I'm suffering? How can you drink in front of me? You know? <laughs> yeah. That was how I felt at first that I'm, I, you know, not making fun of it, but that's really how I felt. So in that second year, you know, I really made my, you know, my internal dialogue, like bless him, change me, bless him, change me. And also we have a prayer in um, 12 steps, which is like turning it over. And I mean, I go saying around out loud, release me of the bondage of self, like release me. It's not all about me. Get me out of my head. And now I see him um, more of that. Yeah, he's suffering too. Whether or not he's an alcoholic or not, people drink to forget, right? Mm -hmm. So whatever he's, you know, at first it's fun and then it becomes like you get to this point where you're just like, um, I don't know. You just, I can see it in him that he's just doing it because of stress or because of, of uh, just wanting to get out of his own head. So just seeing him with compassion has really helped me. And realizing that, you know, learning from being around people that have had long-term recovery that, you know, we're all on our own journey. And I'm completely not in control of anyone. And I'm barely in control of myself. So I can't control anybody else. Yeah, that's a that's profound perspective to look at that. Where, where you, you almost have to shift your mentality to be successful with this. Is If you need to look at him in regards, like, it's not all about you. It's, hey, it's all, you know, why have you drink in front of me? And if you shift it and look at it, in, in terms of compassion, in terms of empathy, like you just mentioned, I imagine that would have a huge shift on the subject. Um, and I want to, I want to get your advice on another issue, not issue, just another, uh, yeah, topic here. Um, I've, I've, uh, doing the podcast, the best part about it is hearing from other people who are, who are doing it. And I got a text message from a friend and, um, I haven't responded yet, but uh, let me read this to you. And again, this is if sure. I, I just want to read this to you. But it said sure. um, he, his, he was going to get sober in the New Year's, and he texted me and said it was like the January second. And uh, and I just I just said he said January second. He said, hey, today's day one. And I was like, well, isn't isn't one one supposed to be day one? I was like I was like kidding. I was like, hey, how's the alcohol thing going? And this is like three days later. He goes, you know, how's it going? Are you still doing it? He goes, well, it didn't go well. I did two days, and that was it. I think I actually need to go to, to a detox place for a week. I listened to your podcast, and, but when I try to apply it, everything goes to shit. I get really worried when I can't have a drink. I salivate for one at different times depending on when I wake up for work, but I only wake up for work about 40 minutes before I have to go. I think depression plays a huge part, and alcohol doesn't help at all. But I'm afraid that if I quit drinking, I may have to actually deal with my issues and my depression. And it says, I'm, I've never told anybody this stuff. And please, you cannot tell anyone else. Oh, shit. I just told you and a lot of people are listening. So, <laughs> it does say that. But uh, 
Um, I, I did switch a couple things up in there. So, I mean, there is, I do need respect this person wishes. So, but what do you have to say there? You know, the, what kind of screams at me from his email is he's just totally afraid. He's, a, he's fearful. He's afraid of, you know, what his life is going to look like. If he's depressed, I mean, you know this, obviously an anxious, his um, alcohol exacerbates that. I mean, we think we're drinking alcohol to calm us down, but it actually will turn on us and make us more anxious and depressed. So I would recommend to him, I'd say reach out and get some, you know, I don't know what his um, you know, medical insurance coverage is, but you can go to any hospital and any county has um, a place where you can just get a bed and just not drink for, you know, 72 hours. Mm-hmm. You know, just get into a safe place and get over that few days hump because it sounds like he, he can get a couple days. And, you know, maybe get something that will get get some people to look over him and just be with him. You can't do that yourself, but there are professionals that can do that just for a few days, you know, and get sober. So, you know, and, and if he doesn't want to do that, then you know what? He's not ready to get sober. You know, I run through a, that a lot. You know, there's a gal that we were working with on Monday and, you know, for, I mean, years and years, she just can't seem to get over that hump of getting sober. And we're like, well, what are you going to do different this time? And everything she said was exactly what she's done before. And I go, hey, you know, I love you, but you're not ready now either. You know, nothing you're going to, you're not doing anything different than you did, you know, for the last whatever. So one of the things we suggested to her was like, find an IOP, which is an outpatient. Mm-hmm. You know, just get into that group and they will give, usually the outpatient groups are tied to a medical community and you can also get some help, um, some medical help as well. And ladies and gentlemen, we have the new host of the Recovery Elevator podcast, Chrissy. <laughs> <laughs> great, great answer. Seriously, I didn't think it was going to work. Everything. No, you, uh, you no, nailed every, it. And I love everything. how you started off. It's the fear. It, 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 this person is afraid. And they're not, they're not out of the norm. It's not the anomaly here. I was extremely terrified. I was gripped with fear that I couldn't make a decision. I couldn't imagine life with alcohol, but holy shit, I also couldn't imagine it without alcohol. The anxiety, the depression, all exacerbated by it. And if this person, it sounds like they're not ready, which, which sucks. Right. Which does suck. Right. But, but they are taking huge steps forward in their journey, despite what I read as well as the same thing as they're not quite ready. But, you know, they can put the shovel down at any time. Prove me wrong. Um, I love it. And Chrissy, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Yes. All right. Number one, Chrissy, what was your worst memory from drinking? Um, My worst memory was wanting to get home after delivering my first kid so I could have a glass of wine. That's like not supposed to be the feeling you have when you deliver a baby. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, when I picked up my poodle, same thing. It's like, oh man, I've been I've been sober for this drive all the way to Stevensville, Montana, for three hours. I just can't wait to put the poodle in a cage and, and drink. No, I, I hear you, and uh, <laughs> that's a good one actually. Um, number two, we've all heard of the aha moment. When was your oh shit moment, indicating you really can't control your drinking? Well, I'm sure it was when that gal told me that my eyes were yellow. I mean, I was like, oh my god, the game is over. And that whole day will be the best and the worst day of my life. I mean, like I said, changed everything. So that was my oh shit. Yeah. And Chrissy, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? You know, my plan in sobriety is to continue to um, stay in the middle of the herd, as we like to say. So I um, I have a, a good about five 12-step um, meetings a week. I try to still. 
I work with um, with one other person that I'm working through the steps. I continue to work with my sponsor, and I just keep, you know, turning it over, just turning it over. Your will, not mine, be done. And it seems to make, give me peace, and it uh, helps me with all areas of my life. So the more I can let go, the fuller my, the fuller my cup gets. And Chrissy, what's your favorite resource in your recovery? You know, I'd say my favorite resource is my group of drunks, as we like to say, or you can call it your higher power or your God. Just the community that I have here in uh, Mill Valley, Marin County. You know, we really like to drink, but we also really like to get sober. So the community is my favorite recovery. You know, I'm going to echo that. If, if you were to ask me that question, it would be the same answer. My sobriety community uh, my recovery network, just what you said. And next question in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received, Chrissy? Well, you know, there's a, tons of smart and funny and good people in, in my recovery community. But I remember one gal in the very beginning, uh, she was sober like 40 years. And pick it up and come to a meeting. <laughs> wait, wait, say it one more time. <laughs> I didn't hear the last part. She said, if your ass falls off, pick it up and come to a meeting. <laughs> I love it. And what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are in recovery or thinking about getting sober? If you're even like having the inkling and thinking about getting sober, why not just go for it? Just do it. You know, the old Nike saying, just, just give it a try. And as we like to say, if you don't find what you're looking for, we will refund all your misery. I love it. Man, before we depart, Chrissy, give listeners your own customized You Might Be an Alcoholic gift line. Okay. You might be an alcoholic if you go to Safeway and the checker asks, are you having a party? And you're like, meh, just my stash. <laughs> what are you referring to? <laughs> no, no. Exactly. No. Oh, all the alcohol in the chip. Oh, yes, yes. It's a, it's a, it's a very elegant cocktail party that I've been planning for weeks. Yes, yes. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, Chrissy, thank you so much for joining us. Have a fantastic rest of your day. Awesome. Thank you, Paul. You too. Good talking to you. Take care. Dodgeball, dolls, dominoes, drawing, dumpster diving, eating out, educational courses, electronics, embroidery, entertaining your folks, your kids, your neighbors, and the creepy guy behind your house, exercise, aerobics, weights, falconry, already said falconry, I love it, working on fast cars, fencing, cake decorating, calligraphy, camping, candle making, home theater, horse riding, hot air, ballooning, hula hooping, hunting, ice skating, illusions, Michael, birding, BMX, blacksmithing, blogging, board games, boating, both water boating and land boating. I have no idea what land boating is. Bodybuilding, bonsai tree, and book binding. Oh yeah, boomerangs, bowling, and bridge building. There are so many cool things to do in sobriety. Why drinking a poison would even hold a candle to any one of those activities that I just mentioned, well, besides book binding, that one you could probably make a compelling argument. But seriously, there's so many cool things to do out there in recovery to fill this void. And what's the timeline? Well, I recommend you have all these voids filled within your first four days of sobriety. I am just kidding. <laughs> like I said, I'm still working on filling these voids, but it's a never ending fun process. This last summer, I did a 19-mile ridge race, and I've never done anything like that before. It's probably going to be a bucket list item. I didn't run across the finish line and say, hey, where's the next 20-plus mountain run that I can sign up for? It was probably a one-and-done type thing, but 
I'm trying out new things. And it was a healthy, fun experience. Okay, recovery elevator. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this.